Get ready to rumble. Shilling Show Unleashed on the Seven Thunders Media Network. Former city councilor, husband, father, and community watchdog. Your host, Rob Schilling. Welcome to the Schilling Show Unleashed podcast. Remember, your direct support makes our show possible, and you can directly support this podcast by visiting shillingshow.com and then clicking on the Patreon banner at the top of the page to make a monthly contribution. We appreciate your support. Chilling Show Unleashed podcast welcomes Peachy Keenan, an essayist, a former corporate writer, mom and wife, and author of the new book, Domestic Extremist, A Practical Guide to Winning the Culture War. Peachy Keenan, thank you for joining us today on the Shilling Show Unleashed podcast. Oh, hey, great to be here. Thanks. I want to start off with this because this is a term that we've heard a lot, the culture war, and yet a lot of people may be a little unclear about what that is. So let's start there. Yeah, well, the culture war sort of has two, there's sort of like two sides to this that people talk about. Like one, people talk about culture in terms of entertainment, movies and pop culture and social media and all that stuff. And that's all great to talk about. My book focuses a little bit on that, but it's really more about American culture in terms of society, in terms of where we are socially, in terms of where we are with our, how we relate to our families and each other and our, and our, and our government and how, the, how this all works. So that's what I mean by culture war. You know, people talk about culture war issues like you know, abortion and marriage and all of that stuff. So that is sort of my focus with the book. Were we always in a culture war in this country or, or is there some place you can put <laughs> your, your finger on as to when this really became a serious battle? I guess that there sort of has always been like, you know, right and left kind of duking it out, um, at least in the modern era, probably starting, you know, around the 60s, for, certainly. I was actually trying to think the other day, when did this, when did like, you know, the sort of like wokeness really start? But I remember being in college and in the nineties, I don't want to date myself too much. And, you know, there was the whole era of the, of political correctness. So I think a lot of the kind of like critical theories, critical race theory, critical gender theory, all that stuff had kind of seeped out of the universities in the starting in the seventies and the eighties. We were oblivious as this kind of was growing in the background. And then by the 90s, it definitely hit college campuses. And I remember speech codes and people getting really mad about certain words that were potentially racist or, you know, had overtones of all that. And so that seems to be when it sort of started. But it hasn't hit, you know, really it was the pandemic that seemed to just put everything into super overdrive. And now it feels like a tsunami has hit us, right? (laughs) Yeah, it certainly does. And that's the, the frightening part, because for during those times you referenced in the 90s and even into the 2000s, I mean, it, it was tolerable, but the left has been on fire and the totalitarian instincts have been rising, like you say, since mm-hmm. the pandemic, or rather the response to the pandemic and the shutdowns, which empowered people to really try to take control over all of our lives. It's, it's bothered me a lot. I think you hit it well. Yeah, and it, it definitely feels like they're not letting up. You know, they found a a loophole to exploit and they're just, they have their pedal all the way to the metal and they're just pressing this thing as hard as they can, as fast as they can and kind of speed running the Bolshevik revolution (laughs) (laughs) as fast as they can. And it's, 
it's coming at you from every angle. You know, it's coming in your front door. It's coming at you from at work. It's coming whenever you at you when you turn on any kind of screen, your phone, the news, in every direction. It it feels inescapable at this point. You know, sometimes I feel like, uh, am I trapped in this? Is just because I live in L.A. <laughs> but I have friends who have moved to Texas and moved to Nashville. And as you know, in Nashville, they're having their own sort of form of color revolution right now. Um, these, this thing is happening in, Nebraska. we see the state houses in Nebraska and Kansas and Montana, you know, transgender activists throwing things around, wreaking havoc. It definitely feels like inescapable. And that's one of the reasons I wrote this book, you know, Domestic Extremists. You know, the title is obviously ironic. You know, we're, we're not the extremists. Right. They are the people who are the extremists who are saying that three year olds can change their gender and so forth like that. That feels so extreme to me. And we're just sort of sitting here and still normal, like with the rug got pulled out from under us. Like, wait, what what just happened? We've really lost the messaging battle. And I love that you brought up the term extremist and particularly in the title of the book. But for example, you know, as I'm looking at political ads from Democrats, they're now using the term uh, extremist on abortion regarding Republicans Mm -hmm. and the position of being concerned for life for preborn. And yet we are being termed as the extremists and the media is Mm -hmm. playing right along. Yeah, I mean, we had Merrick Garland calling parents who stood up to school boards literally domestic terrorists. And we're the extreme right. You're on the extreme far right. Well, if they went all the way to the edge of the left, then yes, we are off left here on the, quote, extreme right. But we didn't move. You know, none of us have adopted any kind of crazy ideas. These are the ideas that, you know, the joke is that within recent memory, (laughs) within (laughs) our lifetimes, all of the ideas that you and I have were considered completely normal, uncontroversial, totally mainstream, a man and woman are, you know, mother and father in the home is best for raising a baby. You should try to stay, you know, raise nurse and stay with your baby for as long as you can. Everyone knew these are, these are things that were good. They're objectively good. No one had any problem with these things. There was two genders, uh, rampant promiscuity in young people is probably not the best way to live their lives. Like these are not, <laughs> these are not like crazy, insane ideas. And so what I just did with the title is I just took that kind of slur against us and I flipped it on his head. It's like, well, you know what makes us um, domestic extremists is we're just extremely domestic. That's it. (laughs) And it's a great turn of the phrase and really puts it right back where it belongs. Before we get into some of the issues in the book specifically, because you cover a number of really important areas, I want to talk about your own journey because you didn't start out this way. In fact, you had a pretty significant life transformation. Would you tell us about it? Yeah, sure. I mean, I like to joke that like domestic extremists are made and not mm-hmm. born. Yeah. You know, I didn't, I didn't grow up in any kind of like household that was sort of guiding me towards this. I was, I grew up in Southern California as a, you know, my parents were secular atheists. I was basically a liberal feminist, pro-choice, you know, militant, like pro-abortion through high school and college and my twenties. And I believed all the messaging that like, you know, don't settle down. Like your twenties are for having fun. And like the main thing was to avoid pregnancy and avoid, you know, marriage. Like, why would you want to do that? That's for old people. (laughs) You know, I just totally bought into all that. And so did all my friends, you know, I like to say that I escaped feminism by the skin of my teeth. Because by the time I got married, you know, kind of the end of my 20s, beginning of my 30s, and started having a family, 
and realized, okay, wait, whoa, wow, this is like, uh, this is great. I love this. The, look at, look at this, a baby. I had no idea. Mm-hmm. Look how great this baby is. Yeah. <laughs> no one had like kind of told me that. Like my mother had probably tried to tell me, but I had no, I had no contact with babies. Mm-hmm. You know, I had no little kids in my life at all. I wanted to avoid anything to do with little kids. And then by the time I realized, oh, I love this. This is what I want to do. You know, we barely had enough time squeeze out, so to speak, Mm -hmm. the size family that I wanted. And I, I did get fairly, you know, largish family for, you know, definitely for Southern California. And it was sort of a miracle that it happened to me like that. You know, how I, I look back and I'm like, wow, I so, I so easily could have missed the boat so easily. I just thank God that I kind of had this sort of revelation. What part did faith play in this transformation of yours? So interesting because I didn't actually convert to Catholicism and I'm a, you know, I'm a convert from really secular nothingness. I didn't convert until I already had several children. I was already married. Really. It was thanks to my husband who sort of led me down that path because once we, we first got married, we had a, we had a, you know, we got married with a judge in a backyard. We were not religious or anything. Mm -hmm. And then after our very first pregnancy ended in a miscarriage, at three months wow. and we were completely unprepared. It was, it was so devastating because, you know, we were in the office waiting for the three month checkup, looking at the, you know, ultrasound and like there was no heartbeat. Mm. And it was just this devastating moment. We had no preparation at all. We were completely blindsided and totally traumatized. And a few days later, my husband was like, you know, honey, I'm sorry, but I, I have to, I have to like become Catholic. Mm. I don't know how else to deal with this. Mm. And I was kind of like, well, okay, like whatever, you know, I mean, I'm not going to say no, but I'm good luck. You know, I was very kind of, that kind of freaked me out, but I was not going to not let him do that, of course. And just the process of him going through that journey and me kind of coming along for the ride, it, it was sort of a slow process of me think, you know, kind of all my, all my secular atheism, you know, looked so bleak and sterile and, you know, by comparison, and I was like, well, this is, let me, you know, I sort of got intrigued. And so a few years later, I followed him into the church. You know, it's interesting. We're talking about babies. And one of the early chapters in the book is talking about fertility and fleeting fertility. Mm-hmm. And so we see a rising age of motherhood and, and lots of other effects of that in America. So how has fertility changed over time? And what have been the, the kind of driving forces behind the changes? You know, I mean, the main thing is just careerism telling young women that the main value they provide to society and the main path to happiness is through work. A family is secondary and, you know, you can do your family later. And that's why we have all this new reproductive technology coming in to kind of fill in the gaps. You know, one of the things I was learning about um, while I wrote the book was about the egg, you know, egg freezing industry and egg donation industry. And so a lot of these HR companies now, um, I mean, HR departments at large companies include free um, egg freezing wow. as part of your benefits package. So you will go to work and they will offer to harvest your eggs for you and free, put them on ice until such time, you know, as you are ready after you've been productive for a while. But what they're really doing is they don't want to lose you to maternity leave because women who go on maternity leave cost the company money and a lot of them don't come back. A lot of them, like me, meet the baby, and they're like, oh, this is much better. <laughs> I don't want to go. I don't want to go back. I'm, I'm good here, you know. So they'll freeze your eggs for you. And the irony with egg freezing, what they don't tell you is 
They're going to freeze your eggs so they stay young. But you yourself, your body isn't being frozen. Your your uterus isn't being frozen. And so when you're like 42, 45, and you're ready to unfreeze those eggs, guess what? You're still going to have a horrible time getting pregnant because your actual body is not ice either. And so we, we painted ourselves into this terrible corner where women are being lied to to kind of extract resources from them. I want to also bring up in this context the topic of daycare, because you mentioned about falling in love with with the child in in a way that you didn't anticipate and how a lot of women don't go back. But many do and are detached from the whole experience of raising their children, at least in the full way that they could if they were uh, taking care of them full time. Do you run into these questions or do you run into people talking about this and having concerns over whether or not that's the right thing to do? Yeah, I mean, the daycare question is one of probably the most kind of controversial things you can write about, because I know a lot of good people who are wonderful parents, you know, they don't really have a choice. If they don't put their child in daycare, they can't work and they'll, they'll lose their house, they'll starve. Like there's not, there's so, there's so few options. And so I understand all that. Like I totally get it. Just because you have to do something, that doesn't mean it's good. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean it's a benefit to the child. It's like an unfortunate thing you need to do. We need to kind of look at that clear-eyed and like, well, what is the real cost of sending a newborn to daycare? I'm not really talking about preschool with toddlers, mm-hmm. but I'm talking about six-week-old babies in full-time daycare, 40, 50 hours a week. Mm-hmm. What that does not only to the baby, but to the mother is not a natural way of living. That's not how women in ancient cultures live. That's not how any woman has lived until we got to like sort of the industrial revolution or whatever. And the outcome of children who go to, who are in daycare full time since they're newborns, there's cognitive differences, there's behavioral differences. You know, you can, you can research all that stuff. That's real. And just the agony of the mother having to, to dump the kid every morning. It's sort of this like tragic corner that we painted ourselves into and that you're not able the choice you know what about my choice to stay home with my newborn you know why everyone talks about women's choices women's choices what about what about that choice what about what about what the baby wants let's talk about what the baby wants the baby wants mom the newborn wants one thing and that's you and that's it. And you're the, you're the child care. You're the, affor- what do they call it? The affordable quality child care. Yeah. That's you. You're home with the baby and you even have your own food supply. I mean, this is like very normal and very natural. And we've somehow made it this like crazy thing that you can't be with your baby. You, you should go back to work and provide value. And we're just doing it all wrong. The Shilling Show Unleashed podcast continues in a moment with Peachy Keenan. Support this podcast. Online at shillingshow.com. Borderhawk.news is a one-stop shop with the latest news about immigration, nationalism, and globalism. The Borderhawk staff daily curates immigration news stories and in the fashion of the Drudge Report, updates the site with cutting-edge content and original first-class commentary. Borderhawk.news highlights national and international media reports, tweets, and nuggets buried in local news blurbs, polls, video clips, and policy research. Borderhawk is pro-legal immigration, pro-rule of law, 
but against an unsecure border as countless Americans have suffered violence at the hands of criminal illegal aliens. And an increasing number of Americans are concerned about how mass migration affects their daily life. Borderhawk.news will remain on the forefront of the immigration issue with a buffet of info to read, evaluate, and share. Bookmark Borderhawk.news. Add them on social media at Borderhawknews on Twitter. Get your fix online at shillingshow.com. Peachy Keenan is our guest. The new book is Domestic Extremist, a Practical Guide to Winning the Culture War here on the Shilling Show Unleashed podcast. This is a really interesting chapter that you have. It's the, the attack on virtues, essentially, and how some of these things that used to be held so highly have really been put on almost the opposite end of the spectrum. I want to start out with modesty. My goodness, uh, you can go out anywhere in public. We're in a college town here in Central Virginia, so we see it uh, in summer nights, but just the lack of modesty, in uh, particularly in dress, but also in behavior. That's right. Modesty, right. It's not just dress. It's also it's also kind of modesty in behavior, kind of moderation. Mm-hmm. Um, I just saw there was a hilarious story a couple of days ago in the news about young women are now being forced to wear these things they were calling like privacy covers over their skimpy tops mm-hmm. out in public so that people wouldn't stare at them. And it was just like hilarious that women are rediscovering Mm. the value of modesty (laughs) in public. Like, oh, yeah, privacy cover, i.e. a dress or a shirt that isn't showing like, you know, every single detail of your entire body to to random strangers. And it's just hilarious how they're 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 discovering these things that we've all known for many millennia that women in public. I mean, everyone in public, you know, there's sort of decorum that you should should use for good reason. You know, I tell my daughter, like, she'll be like, what about this shirt? What about this shirt? I have to kind of police her, you know, well, actually, no, you, we're not going to have the short, the shirt, this short, the shorts, that short, and this kind of bathing suit and that kind of bathing suit. And she totally gets it. But it's hard to find clothing that covers their skin. I mean, we were at the mall looking for some dress for some, it was like a church event. Yeah. And all the dresses that had cut out backs, they're very short, midriff, midriff showing. I mean, they came with everything except for birth control. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> I was like, what do I just want a regular dress, just a regular old dress. <laughs> yeah. And it's hard to find those things. I mean, and you know, we're coming on summer. It's bathing suit season. And I actually have a chapter in the book or a section in the book about, you know, what happened to the bottoms of women's bathing suits? Mm. Like, when did those vanish? Mm. I, I, I miss that trend. Like, what, what is that look? I'm not, I'm not down with that. <laughs> so as you talk about modesty with a young woman, like your daughter or, or anybody else, how do, you, how do you frame it? In other words, it may not be immediately obvious. And when you say no, you have to say no for a reason. So how do you make that argument? Young girls, they're, they're trying to look pretty. They're trying to look cute. You know, they're trying to look attractive, maybe to, maybe to cute boys. Mm-hmm. And they're trying to look cool, okay? So I understand all that. I was a young woman, and I wanted to look just that same way also. And I tried to explain to them or to her, I have more than one daughter, that beauty and looking pretty and looking attractive is modest dressing. That is more attractive. That does make you look more alluring, more, you know, cuter and classier. And that girls who have everything hanging out, those are, when the boys look at them, they're not thinking, 
oh, what a, what a cute girl, you know, what a, no, they're thinking about something else that is nothing to do with who you are or, you know, what grade of a wife you would be, you would be. They're thinking about things that you probably don't want them thinking about. And the people looking at you aren't just going to be cute boys. They're going to be like creeps Mm. that you do not want paying attention to you. And so modest dressing is about looking fabulous, but with a little, little class, a little dignity and glorifying God at the end of the day. You know, modesty is probably rare. The word's not heard too often, but the one, the other word or one of the others that you focus on is chastity, which that word has basically been eradicated from the English language. I haven't heard it in years. And so let's talk about the importance of chastity. Yeah, that is another one that like you will be arrested. If you try to talk about that, you'll be yeah. stoned to death yeah. um, <laughs> for even breathing those words. How, how could you? Yeah. Um, but I do talk about it because these are sort of timeless, eternal things and not just for women for men and boys also, that worked for a long time. And now I'm not advocating, you know, chassis belts or, or anything like that. And we're never going to get all the toothpaste back in the tube yeah. in terms of chastity, right? You're never going to win the argument of like, you know, no one should ever be having premarital sex until they're married. Like you can say that all you want. A lot of people are going to, you know, roll their eyes or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I'm sorry to tell you that if you're raising teenagers, you absolutely do want to be giving them that message because the alternative is so ugly. Like I never understand like parents with teenagers who supply them with birth control pills or with condoms and teach them about safe sex. I like have to like, it's stunning to me. Are you saying that you approve of your son sexually exploiting a young girl, Mm. a girl younger than him for sex? Is that really what you want your son to be doing? using a younger child for sex like in their head there it's going to be some beautiful teenage romance just passionate love like what they used to fantasize about getting but no in reality it's going to be about a boy using a girl hurting her who knows what will come out of that you know there's all kinds of teenage pregnancy and all kinds of nightmares and the emotional damage and it's just stunning to me that parents would even consider encouraging or allowing that among their teenagers. And I mean, yes, and you can prevent that. You absolutely can make sure that you're, at least when they're under your roof, you know, that they're not doing things with, with and to other kids. So we have this issue with, with young women and, and the focuses that we just talked about, but we should also talk about the kind of the deprecation of men and masculinity in context of that, and maybe we start here as the pornography problem because this is rampant. You used to have to go to a store or maybe mail order, and now it's available in a couple clicks to anybody who wants it. And there's been studies, I, I cite some in the book, that prove that like pornography use has the same effect on the brain as heroin or, or meth. Mm. I mean, it really is sort of eye meth. It's so addictive, so destructive. And just like drugs, you keep needing to have a more extreme hit. You know, the regular kind of vanilla stuff doesn't have the same effect on you. You have to keep kind of ratcheting it up to more taboo. And that's how you get into the world of child pornography and other, you know, abuse pornography. And There's just a whole world out there that is so dark. I, I really, I can't even think about it. Once you're going down that road, I mean, you're, you're done. Like you're done with humanity. Like you're just now you're in the demonic in the demonic realm. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so people need to be, I think to, they don't, they think it's entertainment. It's just another form of content. It's just, well, I'm lonely or whatever. I'm just killing time. 
No. <laughs> my kids, we, they have, uh, they go through this like program at their school that kind of educates them on like what it does to you, the victims involved, you know, mm. the, the, many of the people involved in it are, are, are being exploited, sex trafficked. It's so, it's highly immoral. It's a sin. And I mean, with this, you know, yes, we do, we do try to kind of scare them a little bit, you know, like what will happen to you if you even look at it, like, it's just, it's like letting letting this sort of evil presence into your brain. And sometimes there have been times where like someone will Google something. One of the kids will Google mm-hmm. something and something will pop up. Yeah. That's like, whoa, two days ago, I was like looking at Twitter and it showed like just the videos in my timeline, something I didn't follow, which is full blown pornography wow. still in Twitter, the mm-hmm. grown up pornography. And I was like, what? Like on my phone right there. And I just like blocked whoever it was. Like, I don't know how it got into my feed. Mm. And you have to kind of immunize them and prepare them for seeing that and just having the strength to turn it off, to look away, to not, to not be tempted. And I, I understand that's difficult. I mean, or no, and people make mistakes. It's definitely, you have to kind of scare them. You know, there's so many more topics that you cover in the book that we can't get to here, but it's why people need to read the book, Domestic Extremists. I do want to spend at least the last couple of minutes because you have a full chapter on taking it back. What are the two or three most important things that we can do as a culture of domestic extremists to take it back? I think if you are young and fertile and wondering if you should spend your 20s kind of trying to find yourself, exploring the world, traveling documenting it for social media, or if you should get married to your boyfriend or your girlfriend and start a family, I urge you strongly to consider not embarking on that journey alone. Yes, you should get married. You should 100% get married and do not waste your most fertile, your young, your most youthful years, the years where you're the most at your prime of your beauty and your, and your vibrancy. Don't throw those away on strangers and on social media clout, you know, find yourself a partner, start having cute babies. They're, they're great. And if you're older than that, if you're, if you're already a parent, if you already have kids and you're grappling with all the same things that my husband and I are, you know, I urge you to read the book and consider some of the tips I have in there. Like, you know, be very cautious around public school, try to get TikTok off their phones. Remember that you are the parent and it's your job to assert your parental authority even though it might make you the bad guy, it might make you unpopular at your school. I know parents who are fighting with their own schools right now. Like uh, one of my friends told the school that her daughter will not, her 10-year-old daughter, will not use her pronouns, will not introduce herself with her pronouns like every other child in the class wow. is commanded to. She won't. She won't be doing it. And she's now blackballed, and she just is shrugging. She's like, I don't care. I'm not going along with it. And that's, I think, what it takes. And the book is sort of going to, I wrote it to kind of be a morale builder and to let people know, like, you're not alone. There's huge strength in our numbers. It's just, we're all kind of scared. We're all kind of scared to assert ourselves. We don't want to lose our jobs. We don't want to get in trouble, but you're not alone. I'm in it with you. (laughs) It's good to have you on board. Peachy Keenan, if people will get a copy of Domestic Extremist, A Practical Guide to Winning the Culture War, or to follow your work online, tell us how we can do those. Sure. You can follow me on Twitter at Keenan Peachy. You can read my Substack, peachykeenan.substack.com. And all the information on my books, all my podcast appearances is on my website, peachykeenanwrites.com. 
Peachy Keenan, you've done a wonderful job in laying out a game plan. I hope people follow it. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Shilling Show Unleashed podcast. Oh, this is my pleasure. Thank you so much. Take care. That concludes another edition of the Shilling Show Unleashed podcast. Visit us online at shillingshow.com where you can directly support this podcast by clicking on the Patreon banner at the top of the page and making a monthly donation. Your support is essential for the continuation of the Shilling Show Unleashed podcast. Until next time.